I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Luis Von Ahn, an inventor and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon. Luis is one of the creators of CAPTCHA, a device that allows websites to determine whether you're a human or a computer trying to abuse your system. CAPTCHAs are wavy, distorted words on screens that people need to type out when you're submitting a form to a website to confirm that you're not a bot. His company, ReCAPTCHA, proved users were humans while digitizing books. The company was sold to Google in 2009. In 2011, Luis founded Duolingo, the most popular language learning program on the web, attracting over 150 million users in its first four years. Users worldwide learn a language for free while also translating the web into every major language. Investors include Google, NEA, Kleiner Perkins, Ashton Kutcher, and Tim Ferriss. Luis graduated from Duke in 2000 and got a PhD from Carnegie Mellon in 2005. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2006 and is from Guatemala. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. And all this, by the way, uh, since 1978, the year, the year you were born. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about CAPTCHA first and about your, your research, because your research at Duke and Carnegie Mellon has informed your career and your companies. Can you tell us w- what it means again? Yeah, so CAPTCHA is, is those distorted squiggly characters that you have to type all over the internet uh, whenever you're buying tickets on Ticketmaster. Whenever you're getting uh, a, a new account, for example, an email account uh, from, from Gmail, or whenever you're opening an account on Facebook, you usually have to type these distorted characters. And, and CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. Basically what it is, is it's a test to determine whether you're actually a human. So for example, um, in the case of Ticketmaster, those CAPTCHAs are there, the, the distorted characters are there to make sure that somebody didn't write a program to buy kind of all the tickets for a concert, uh, you know, kind of two at a time. You developed the term CAPTCHA Mm -hmm. with a professor of yours, Manuel Blum, uh, who was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. How did you come on to this concept of security versus any other form? In about the year 2000, um, I was was listening to a talk at Carnegie Mellon from uh, a guy named Uri Manber, who at the time was the chief scientist of Yahoo!, um, he had a talk about 10 problems that they couldn't solve at Yahoo. One of them was they had a problem with people who were writing programs to obtain millions of email accounts from Yahoo. The people who were doing this were spammers, and so they were basically supporting spammers, and they didn't want to do that. Uh, over the next few months, with my PhD advisor, Manuel, we came up with this idea of, of coming up with a test. You know, At the time, nobody had thought, well, we should test whether they're human or not. It, just the problem was, can, how do we stop these people from getting free email accounts. And we came up with the idea that, well, one way to stop them is to make sure that it's a human actually getting them, because humans can't get millions of accounts. They, uh, humans can only get a couple hundred accounts, because afterwards they get bored. Uh, so that, that that was the idea. I've always liked the name CAPTCHA, because it's sort of like gotcha, you know? Yeah, lucky, yeah. lucky that, that you. That was the idea. It's like, yeah, capture or gotcha <laughs> or something. Isn't it interesting path dependency? Like, you happen to be sitting at this lecture with this Yahoo guy, and had you not encountered him or, or had your relationship with Manuel, this might never have been. And it's always hard to think of counterfactuals, and you might have gone on to create something else that's innovative. But funny how things happen through happenstance like this. Yeah, there were all kinds of things. I mean, I also, I was torn about whether I should go get my PhD at Carnegie Mellon or whether I should go, I I was considering at the time going to Berkeley or Stanford, and it it wasn't clear. So yeah, there were all kinds of 
happenstance there. Why did you choose Carnegie Mellon over Stanford or Berkeley? Um, because of because because I wanted to work with with my advisor Manuel. I mean, he was um, this guy um, won a Turing Award, which is kind of the, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Computer Science. And he was, uh, you know, uh, we hit it off really well as soon as I met him. So I, I chose Carnegie Mellon all, over all these schools because I, I could work with him. And by the way, we mentioned Turing. You tell me exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> Turing, Alan Turing, is widely considered the guy who, you know, the, the father of computer science. Um, there's a movie about him, uh, The Imitation Game. I mean, he was in the, you know, he, w- he was a mathematician uh, in the middle of the century, uh, a British mathematician in the 1940s, 19, 1950s. The, the British government contracted him to break the, the Enigma machine. Um, but, in, you know, among other things that he did, he essentially started the field of computer science. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of ideas. And one of his ideas was, uh, you know, he thought, well, at some point, computers are going to be probably about as human, uh, as intelligent as humans. And one of the questions that he addressed was, when will we know that a computer is as intelligent as a human? And he came up with this idea of what's called the Turing test. Imagine there's a, there's a human judge that is talking over texting with a human and a computer. And if the human judge cannot tell which one's which, then we will say that that computer has passed the Turing test. Everybody in the field of computer science knows about the Turing test. And this is very similar to a Turing test, where you're trying to distinguish if you're talking to a human or a computer. But the big difference is the judge, in this case, had to be a computer, not a human. So it had to be. So it's this paradoxical thing that a computer needs to be able to determine whether it's talking to a human or a computer, but a computer should not be able to pass this test. Now, in, in the same uh, research, uh, as you were uh, trying to develop this idea of CAPTCHA, you also came up with the idea of GWAPs, mm-hmm. uh, which are um, games with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, can you describe that? And um, how are they related? Yeah, so so I helped develop this notion of a CAPTCHA. Um, and then it started being used by all kinds of websites. Pretty quickly, Yahoo started using it. They had an actual big Need. problem. Yeah, so pretty quickly they started using it and all kinds of um, websites started using it. And then uh, that became my research where coming up with things that computers could not do, uh, but humans could do. In particular, I had just gone to a talk about somebody who was at the time working on a computer program to try to solve crossword puzzles. I thought, okay, computers can't do that. Then I got on a plane and I noticed that everybody in my row was trying to solve a crossword puzzle. And I thought, whoa, these people are doing something that computers cannot do, and they're doing it willingly. So can we get people uh, to do the things that computers can't willingly? Uh, and that's where the idea of Games of the Purpose came, where the idea is these are games that people are playing, like crossword puzzles, but as they're playing them, they're, they're trying to solve a problem that computers cannot solve. Yeah. And you know, this was before the word crowdsourcing even existed, et cetera, but this is like the first instantiation of or idea of kind of crowdsourcing. Instead of getting computers to solve problems, um, can we get humans over the internet to just solve them for us? Now, this is all around 2005, uh, 2006. In 2006, mm-hmm. you get the MacArthur Genius Award. How does that happen? Was that out of the blue, or did you know you were nominated? What is that process? No, I had no idea I was nominated. I suppose somebody nominates you, but you're you're never aware of it. And in the meantime, the MacArthur Foundation is doing a whole lot of research on you and what you know, whether you should get one of these or not. Um, and at some point, you just get a phone call saying, hey, uh, you just got the MacArthur Award. Um, but they're a little uh, sneaky. The bef- Before that, they do they do contact you uh, in in ways that you don't realize. I mean, for example, in my case, there was, there was somebody who was supposed to be a PhD student in psychology who was very interested in my research. 
and I, and and actually that that was that was them. And one of the things they needed to make sure of is that when I got the phone call, I was there in in my office. And this person said, "Oh, I'm gonna you know I'm, I'm gonna come to I'm gonna come on that day." And so I was in my office waiting for this person, and I just got a phone call. Wow. Uh, so so they are they're a bit sneaky like that. Who nominated you ultimately? Do you know? You never find out. You were less than 30 years old. You were, what, 28 years old when you won the award? Give or take, yeah. So in this, you know, five-year period, you get the MacArthur Genius Award. You develop CAPTCHA. You're working with companies like Yahoo. How did you go about commercializing CAPTCHA with Yahoo, for example? So that the first instantiation of that was not commercialized at all. We just gave it to Yahoo for free. We were super happy for them to use it. We were academics, and we were just happy that, that somebody was using what we were doing. Um, later, uh, I did start a company related to CAPTCHAs, but it was that's kind of that was in 2006 where I, where I started this other company called Recaptcha, and that that became a commercial venture. But that was that was much later. And prior to Recaptcha, your first company was called ESP, yeah. which was matching images where two users from in two different geographic locations are using their computers to identify images, mm-hmm. and they're playing a game. They have to match their description of the image. The founders of Google, uh, Sergey Brin and Larry. Page got wind of this. You gave a speech at Google where they met you, where the founders met you. Can I you did. describe that? Yeah, yeah, so that that's what happened. I mean, I I mean, a few people from from Google heard about um, my work, um, and so I went to Google. Uh, this this is two thousand three, two thousand four. It's a much smaller company. Uh, so I gave a speech, and the two founders were actually in the audience. And then right after, they just uh, you know very simply just said, "Hey." Uh, we're we're gonna make use of this. So can can we buy it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it became part of their image labeler. Yes, it, be, it became their Google image labeler, which was the the thing that was used to to improve search engine. ESP was a one man band that that you sold to Google, and then your next company was Recaptcha uh, that you started in two thousand six, which basically was proving that you are human again, uh, but while d- digitizing books. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that idea? So this was similar to the the idea of, of the the ESP game or the Google Image Labeler, where I mean we're we're trying to get people to solve problems for us that computers cannot. And in in this case, the idea was the following: uh, by 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 2006, captures were used all over the internet. Every single kind of major website used captures. I did a little back of the envelope calculation about how many. Um, captures were typed by people around the world. And, and the number that I came up with was about 200 million times a day. So 200 million times a day, somebody was typing a captcha. First, I was very proud of myself. I thought, look at the impact that I've had. Uh, but then I started feeling bad because not only everybody kind of hated those things. I mean, the, the captures <laughs> are kind of universally hated. Uh, but also, each time you type one of these, you waste about 10 seconds of your time. And if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get the humanity was wasting about 500,000 hours every day typing these. So I started thinking, OK, can we get them to solve a an important problem because during those 10 seconds they're doing something that by definition computers cannot do so can we get them to do something something useful and and I came up with the idea of helping to digitize books the idea is you you want to put the book on the internet the first step is you scan every page of the book now scanning literally what it is is taking a digital photograph of every page the next step in the process is that the computer needs to look at these pictures of of pages and extract all the words so decipher all of the words in there uh, the problem is that for older books, the computer could not recognize many of the words. For the same reason, the computers cannot read these distorted the captchas. For older books, sometimes the ink is a little faded, and the pages have turned yellow, and or the picture may be a little blurry, and it just cannot read. And at the time, about 30% of the words could not be read by, by the computer. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, I look at one of these pictures, and I can read 100% of the words. So can we get people to do it? So. 
that was the idea. The idea was to take all of the words that the computer could not recognize in a book digitization process and then extract them as a picture and then send them over the internet to somebody who's typing a captcha. And whenever they type it, we're going to use what they typed to help digitize the book. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the idea of this company, and that, that started in 2006. So incorporating the games with a purpose into this, incorporating yeah. crowdsourcing into this, all kind of, you know, gelling into this one stew of a company, mm -hmm. ReCAPTCHA. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Luis Von Ahn, an inventor and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon. We'll hear more from Luis coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Luis Von Ahn, an inventor and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon. Luis is one of the inventors of CAPTCHA, a device that allows websites to determine whether you're a human or a computer using those wavy, distorted words on screens. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2006 and is from Guatemala. When you started the company, ReCAPTCHA, how did you monetize, how did you make money from this endeavor uh, with digitized? the books. So the idea is we provided a free capture service to websites. But the way we would make money is we would charge for book digitization. For example, we started helping to digitize all the New York Times archives. But they had scanned them. And they had this huge problem that, yeah, it was scanned, but computers couldn't recognize about 30% of the words. Did you have venture capital? No, no. Yeah. We didn't need it. I mean, we had, I mean, on the day we started the company, we were making, uh, we were making yeah, a few million dollars a year already, and we, we didn't need to spend that much. Google acquired ReCAPTCHA in 2009. Yeah. You, in 2011, started Duolingo, which is the most popular language app on the web. Uh, and basically, you want to provide free language learning uh, to anyone in the world. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with that idea? Well, it started, I mean, so I, I, in 2009, Google bought ReCAPTCHA. Um, and I was, I, I went to Google for a little while after they acquired it. Uh, and I, I started really thinking, well, what, what do I want to do after this? And it was an interesting time because I had more than, you know, more than enough uh, solved my financial problems forever and for me and for my kids. And it, it was fine. So I, I kind of didn't, didn't have to worry about money anymore. Do we uh, know what, how much they bought it for or is that yeah, private? Yeah, it's, it's private. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, but uh, but I was I you know I, I was in a situation where I was a very fortunate situation. Um, but I started thinking, okay, what is it that I want to do for the next you know let's say ten years? Ever since age ten, I wanted to be a professor. So education was always my passion. My my views on education were always related to the fact that I'm from Guatemala. Uh, it's a which is a it's a very poor country, and um, a lot of people talk about. Education is something that brings equality to different social classes. But what I saw in Guatemala and what you see in most developing countries is that it's the opposite. Uh, usually, people who have a lot of money can buy themselves the best education in the world. And because they're so well-educated, they keep on having a lot of money. Whereas people who don't have very much money, in, in especially in developing countries, barely learn how to read and write. So I wanted to do something related to education, but that would give equal access to everybody. So I decided that to work on one aspect of education, which was, which is very large, um, happens to be very large in most every country except the U.S., which is learning a foreign language. There's 1.2 billion people in the world learning a foreign language. The majority of these people, 800 million of them, satisfy three properties. First, they're learning English. Second, the reason they're learning English is to get a job. And third, they are of low socioeconomic conditions. Okay, so most people learning a foreign language are basically trying to learn English in order to get out of poverty. That's, that's it. Mm -hmm. But the ironic thing is, at the time, 
most of the ways there were to learn a foreign language were really expensive, um, particularly through software. So at the time, it was a kind of the height of Rosetta Stone. Uh, it was uh, about between $500 and $1,000. So, so the, if you're poor, it's hard to get the $1,000 to yeah, pay to learn English. This is the ironic English. part, right? right? I mean, <laughs> you're trying to get learn English to get out of poverty, but it seems you need 1000 bucks, which makes no sense. Uh, so we decided to launch uh, uh, something to teach languages. But the, the whole goal was, no matter what, this is always going to be free. Now, the question is, how are we going to keep it free? And at the time, I thought, you know, this is one of those, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, I thought, let's do the same thing we did with reCAPTCHA, where with reCAPTCHA, what we were doing is we were providing this free CAPTCHA service, but in the background, we were making money from people uh, you know, helping us digitize books. So can we do the same thing with languages? Can we provide a free language learning website, but in the background, we would be making money with people doing some something useful for us? I started this with my PhD student at the time, uh, a guy named Severin Hacker, which is, is funny. His last name is Hacker. We thought, okay, the thing that people can do while they're learning a language is to help us translate stuff. Can we, as people are learning a language, get them to translate useful stuff? And that was the idea with Duolingo, and and it worked. So again, you used the CAPTCHA idea and the GWAP, the, the games with a purpose and crowdsourcing idea, to come up with a monetization tool for Duolingo. Uh-huh having companies pay you to translate content on their websites. That's exactly right. And and, and so as pretty soon after we launched we CNN became our client. So they what they were what they were doing is they would write all their news in English, CNN, and they would send us the news in English and then what we did is we we had this language learning website Duolingo which we had just launched and we would give this news to some of our users. And then it was users that were learning English. So, for example, Spanish-speaking users learning English, they would get it, and they would help translate the news into their native language, into Spanish. And they were doing it, of course, to help learn English. And then we would send that news story back to CNN, but translate it. We've actually moved away from this. This is not what we're doing anymore, um, but this was what we launched Duolingo with. What are you doing uh, since then? We realized that over time, we were spending more and more time on the translation quality than on actually teaching, because that's where the money was coming from. At some point, Severin and I were were having dinner one time, and we thought, well, we've turned into a translations company. And do we really want to be a translations company? And first of all, this was not what we set out to do. We didn't want to be a translations company. And secondly, the translations business is not a good business to be in. Uh, it's It's a race to the bottom. This was a tough decision because it was a business model that seemed to be working, but we decided we're going to stop this. And so we actually cut the contract with CNN and with BuzzFeed, and we moved away from that. You did that because you wanted primarily to be a language learning company, not right. a translation company, which basically becomes a commodity. Uh, and it's, it's those decisions are the hardest when things are still going well. Yeah. Did you have any pressure from your venture capital partners to do that? Yes and no. I wouldn't say strong pressure. I mean, the language learning market is a much larger market right. than the translations market and a growing one as opposed to a... You know, you have this other Translation problem. One. Translation, yeah. you also have this yeah. other problem that there's this looming thing that at some point Google Translate is going to get really amazing. Yeah. You, you had a pivot moment uh, at this dinner with Mr. Hacker, with Severin. What have you decided to become? We decided to become a language learning company. We thought, we thought oh, how are we going to make money? Right. Uh, particularly given the fact that one of our tenants is we can't charge. We have three business models. And, you know, this is one of those things when somebody says they have three business models, that means they don't have a business model. Uh, but we have three that are wo- each of them is working uh, uh, okay. So the first one and the one that we've been spending most of our time on, actually a couple of them came from, from our own users. 
we started getting an, a very common email, very similar email from a lot of our users. And it was the following. It, it would say, thank you so much for teaching me English. I was not able to afford learning English before this. But uh, now I have a problem. And it is that I need a certificate that shows that I know English. People were asking, you know, can you give me a certificate? We started looking into this whole certification business. And what we found was pretty insane. So first of all, $10 billion a year are spent by people certifying that they know English. That's a huge amount. And there's all kinds of reasons. People who apply to come to college in the US, the way they certify it is they have to take a standardized test called the TOEFL. But there's other reasons. If you want to get a work visa in the UK or Canada or Australia, anywhere in the Commonwealth, you have to take a standardized test that proves that you know English. If you work for many multinational corporations in, in non-English speaking countries, you have to take a standardized test. So it costs about $250. You usually have to take them in a physical testing center. You have to make an appointment a few weeks in advance, about four weeks in advance. Then you take the test. Then you have to wait another four weeks for your results. So the whole process takes about eight weeks, costs about $250, and you have to go somewhere. That, that sounded pretty annoying to us. But then it's even worse because most people who are doing this are in developing countries. It's way worse. $250, bucks, that's, a, that's a month's salary. So what is your solution? We came up with a test that you can take from an app. You don't have to go to a physical testing center. And also, our test is way cheaper. I suppose it's $250. We charge $50. You've raised venture capital for Duolingo. It's the first time you have done so. Do you have any interesting stories on that process? The first time around, it was not as difficult as in the, the, first, the first round of funding. The first and second round of fundings, we, we raised them essentially on the fact that I had done something before. I right. mean, so we had an idea, right. but whatever. Um, and uh, that was Google and Union Square. Union Square Ventures was the first one, okay. um, and they we we loved working with them. I mean, they're yeah. they're here in New York. Um, the one of the interesting things so we're not in Silicon Valley, so Duolingo is actually located in Pittsburgh because of Carnegie Mellon University. One of the interesting things is when we raised funds, um, we found that the Silicon Valley investors all wanted to invest, but they all in their term sheets it said, "You got to move." Silicon Valley. They all said that. Whereas we found that the New York investors didn't say that. They said, oh, yeah, we'll travel to you. Um, so we we went with a, a New York investor at the first round. After a while, after Duolingo had been going, you know, you can get money probably one or two rounds based on your previous stuff. But once, once you've gotten a couple of rounds, you have to get money based on your success. Uh, so in the, the, you know, when we got, for example, when we raised money from Kleiner Perkins, uh, that was based on Duolingo success and traction. And you know, at that time, we started being able to get money from West Coast investors without making us move because they're like, yeah. all right, fine, you're, you <laughs> seem to be doing okay in Pittsburgh. You're from Guatemala. Mm -hmm. uh, your mother and father are doctors. Mm -hmm. What kind of doctors are they? Um, so my mother's a pediatrician. Uh, my father is, uh, they, they do uh, basically bone type stuff. Your, your last name is Von Ahn. You're, you're originally German. Uh -huh. uh, you're, when did your family come from Germany? My father's parents uh, came in the early early 20th century. And what was the impetus for their coming? There was there was quite a number of people from Germany and from Europe coming to to Latin America because of essentially for business opportunity. I mean, in in Guatemala in particular, what was going on is the educational levels were pretty low. Whereas if you came with a German education, uh, you probably could do pretty well. So you know they they started a farm and they started they 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 knew about technology enough mm -hmm. to essentially succeed with little to no, no yeah. competition. In addition to your parents being practicing doctors, they owned a candy factory. Tell me about that. Yeah, so my, my mom is my mom's side of the family. So my, my grandparents from my mother's side of the family decided to start a candy factory. They were both from Spain. It happened to grow quite a bit. 
Um, my, my grandfather died at, a, at an early age, so it was then my grandmother who ran this candy factory, and, and it became the most popular candy factory in, in Guatemala. They, they made, like, marshmallows and, uh, you know, chocolate and all kinds of candies. Um, uh, at some point, they, uh, they had, by the way, 12 children, yeah. uh, and my mother was one of them. And at some point, they passed on the baton to their children. And so my mother was one of the basically 12 owners of this. And uh, yeah, that was me growing up. I essentially didn't like the candy. How come? Well, I I got bored of it after a while. I mean, I I ate so much that I got bored of it, but I loved the machines. So on Sundays, I would go in there and essentially break machines. Uh, I was not loved by the you'd, by the engineers. You'd break them because you wanted to see what they were like inside or you pr- yeah. or you accidentally broke them? No, no, no. I wanted, I, I took them apart and yeah. I, I would do stuff about taking them apart. Of course, I would take them apart and then when I try to put them back together, I would be left with two or three pieces that I didn't know where, where they went and uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the problem. What was the name of the candy company? It was called Tropical Candy. Uh, it's still there. Yeah. So marshmallow, c- chocolate, what else? Gummy bears and, you know, almost any type of candy. From an early age, you seem to have this curiosity about how machines worked, um, yet your focus is on computer science. Um, did you think you might want to be more of a physical, like, engineer, uh, mechanically? Early on, I, early on, I wanted to be. I mean, I really wanted to understand how all the machines worked, and I, I, I sat there at home making little, you know, gizmos that probably didn't do much, but I was very excited by that. Um, it all changed when I was uh, eight. I wanted a Nintendo. And my mother bought me a computer instead of a Nintendo. I was I was pretty pissed off because all my <laughs> friends had a Nintendo and I she, she didn't get me a Nintendo. This was you know in the eighties. Computers were not super easy to use, um, and she also didn't happen to buy me a super easy to use computer. And so, well, what I wanted to do was play games. So what I did is I had to figure out how to how to use the computer to play games. I started essentially pirating games from from other people, so I became quite a, a game pirate in Guatemala. <laughs> that, that's how I that's how I got good with computers. Yeah. So this is at the age of, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah. The the the, the pirating of games was more like twelve. Yeah. Was, yeah. Now at the age of twelve, also, um, you had this idea to make gyms free or start this business for free gyms. Tell me about that. Well, at the time, I thought I was the first person to ever come up with this idea. I was not. A lot of people have come up with this idea. Let me guess. Harnessing the electricity that you produce yes. by exercising. Yes. Thousands, <laughs> if not millions of people have had this idea, right? It is. But at the time, you know, this is like a 10-year-old kid. I was like, I have this amazing idea. I will become a gazillionaire from this idea. I also thought it really worked. You know, this is by age 13 or 14. I would think I thought the way we're going to make money is by selling the electricity to the electric company. Unfortunately, you know, when I got older, you start doing being able to calculate how much electricity you can sell. It turns out is not a lot. Right. right. It's it's and and then you start also realizing about the gyms that um, most of the money that gyms make are actually by people who sign up but never show up. Yeah. And so this is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you seem to be kind of a self-starting, industrious little kid. Did you have that view of yourself? And was that kind of the perception among your family members? Or how would they describe you? Yeah, they, they would describe me probably as, as uh, nerdy and with a little too much energy. Mm. That's probably, I mean, I was always doing, basically getting in trouble, not not getting in trouble because, you know, I was going out too late or anything, but getting in trouble by breaking things. I mean, one time I was trying to, I wanted yeah. to make a helicopter uh, with an electric motor. I thought the way to make it a helicopter is basically by having a fan pointing it down. And if you if it spins fast enough, it's a helicopter. <laughs> Turns out that is not, <laughs> is not the same kind of blade. And so I had a 
I, I bought this huge battery for it, and it, it wasn't doing it. Then at some point, I realized that if I connected it to the electricity, the this would help. This would help make it go faster. So I connected it to electricity, and then I made, you know, not only my house, but a couple of houses around, and the, uh, lost power because mm. of my brilliant idea. So yeah. I was always getting into trouble for doing crap like that. Yeah. And when you say you had a lot of energy, it was like mind energy, not so much physical. Oh, physical energy too. I basically (laughs) had too much energy. I'm pretty certain that had I been born today here in the US, I would probably be on on some sort of ADHD drugs. Pretty certain (laughs) of this. But back then... In Guatemala, there was no such thing. It's just he had a lot of energy. That's all what people said. And you do exercise daily. Mm -hmm. Uh, You exercise on an elliptical machine, hardcore, for 15 minutes every day. That's my workout. And how long has that been your regimen, your go-to? Maybe about five or six years. And it's really just as... I'm always trying to break my record, you know, as fast as I can go. And Tim Ferriss is one of your investors, and he's all about uh, efficiency and work and workouts. Did you have this idea from him, or you were doing this even prior to your uh, your 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 relationship? I, I was doing this prior to to meeting Tim, uh, but he has all kinds of uh, he has all kinds of ideas. He's he's really a pro with this. What other things do you do that I might not know of uh, know about? What well, other quirky, uh, quirky parts things. of I, Luis? I don't read books, huh? and which is a rare thing for a, for a professor. The last book I read was in 1998. Mainly it's because I, I'm very slow at reading. Do you go back to Guatemala? I do, about twice a year. And how does it feel being back? Well, one of the things is I've become kind of a celebrity there because there's not very many people who are in the tech world from Guatemala. So I've kind of become a bit of a celebrity there. Um, so people recognize me on the street. Uh, I mean, not all, not all the people, but it, it happens almost every time I go out. I go and I basically don't leave my house as I, <laughs> I go and I visit my mom. Uh, because it makes you uncomfortable? Yeah, that and it's, you know, Guatemala happens to be a dangerous country. You, you start being worried about being kidnapped or something like that. And I, uh, I'm also very happy with the fact that my mom lives in a kind of gated community and barely leaves the house. And also she's nobody, nobody knows what she looks like or anything. So that I'm happy about that. Are your parents divorced? No, my dad passed away when I was uh, 13 or 14. Did that change your relationship with your mother? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was always very close with my mother. I mean, she, I so uh, yeah. I mean, she she's the one who essentially raised me. And are you an only child? I am an only child. Isn't it nice that people appreciate you as a celebrity for doing something of the mind, like for being a computer science geek? That's so nice. That you're, you know, it's not like Matt Damon walking down the street. Right. No, it feels good, and and I think you know, in particular in Guatemala, Guatemala's a, you know, it's a country with. A lot of bad news. I mean, it's just bad stuff happens in Guatemala all the time. So they're very eager to get good news. So when you when they see somebody, I mean, for example, we have one one single Olympic medal uh, of all time, and the guy who won it is a super celebrity because it's like this is the guy who won the Olympic medal. Wow. Uh, and so anything that is that you know a Guatemalan that is successful yeah. uh, does uh, you know it's, it's people are very eager for that. An Olympic medal and now a MacArthur Genius Award. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Luis Von Ahn. Coming up, we'll meet Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat, a company that makes meat using plant protein instead of animal-based protein. The goal is to make a healthier product that looks and tastes and smells like chicken or beef, 
using fewer natural resources and reducing the amount of pollutants. The single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions is livestock. Roughly 1,800 gallons of water is used to make one pound of steak. Ethan launched Beyond Meat in 2009, and the company's products are found in stores across the United States, including Whole Foods and Walmart. Ethan is originally from Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to start by talking about meat's issues. Can you um, give me some more detail around that? If you look at human health and you look at you know, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, you know, there's a growing recognition that there's a link between meat consumption and, and those uh, health epidemics. Uh, and you know, the World Health Organization probably did the most definitive work most recently where they put um, meat in, in, a, in a category, processed meat in a category that was the same as, um, as cigarettes. Then you go to, to climate. When animals are breathing, they're emitting carbon. And so it seems like a minor issue, but if you think about the number of animals we have on the Earth's surface and the fact they're all breathing, and you add that up, you actually come up with about 14% of greenhouse gas emissions being attributed to, to actually just the fact that animals are on the Earth's surface in such numbers and are breathing. And you look at natural resources. All across the country, we're having you know, resource issues of one kind or another, depending on where you live. And then last, you look at animal welfare. Now, people on a handheld can see how their food's being made. And I think more and more people are saying, you know, I'm not in agreement with that particular system. You said just the fact that the animals breathe yields a certain amount of carbon. Well, what about human beings? I mean, yeah. we breathe carbon dioxide, and of course that yields, that helps with photosynthesis. Yeah. But is there an amount of carbon even beyond that that yeah. also leads to, well, so, has so, a de- deleterious effect? To put it in context, you know, we, we raise and we slaughter about 66 billion animals a year, right? So think, of, you know, the, the human population is big, but it's a tenth of that, right? You know, so so uh, that's the issue. So why isn't there more regulation? We think of the auto industry, for example, highly regulated to decrease uh, the amount of pollution that it yields. Why has not the same amount of regulation uh, existed in agribusiness? Is it just because of the strong lobbyists? You know, it's a really interesting question, and I think it goes deeper than that. Um, certainly, that is a factor. It's one thing to you know put a new app out or or you know I always talk about the landline versus the cell phone and that quick transition we had. It's another thing to change how we eat protein, right? I mean, it is protein was such an important part of of, of how we evolved. Prior to even when we were you know Homo sapiens, meat played an enormously important role in in our development. You know, if you think about the human brain when we started to consume meat, it was about 600 cubic centimeters. You know, over the course of revolution, and I think largely due to nutrient-dense food uh, that meat is, uh, it grew to about 1,300 cubic centimeters, right? And what was happening was not only were we getting this really good nutrition, right, but it was uh, reducing the workload on our stomachs. So all that excess energy could go to our brains. It would be unwise for me to say that people shouldn't eat meat. I think that's a mistake, right, because I believe that meat is central to who we are. Um, what I do think is possible and really exciting is that you can get away from the idea that meat has to come from an animal. And with the science we have and the understanding we have today of what meat is, you can build a piece of meat directly from plants. So if we ask you know, anybody, well, what is meat? They'd say, oh, it's uh, the tissue that comes from an animal. Yes. So how would you define meat? You know, the historical understanding, right, is, you know, and, and more, more recently uh, is, you know, chicken has to come from a, a, a meat has to come from a chicken, cow, or pig. The composition of meat is something different, right? The composition of meat is basically amino acids, it's lipids, it's very small amount of carbohydrates, it's trace minerals, and it's water, and it's predominantly water. Mm-hmm. You know, that list of things that I just presented, 
None of those are exclusive to the animal. They're all present in plants. So let's say you take a pea plant. Right. Uh, walk me through how that pea becomes a, a ersatz chicken right. strip. So you take the pea and you basically mill it and you have to separate the, uh, the protein uh, from the fat. So what you do is you put an aqueous solution, a water-based solution in place where um, you change the pH levels and that will separate out the protein from the carbohydrates and from the fat. Where do you get your plants now? The peas that we use are actually grown in, in Canada and grown in France. But it's not about the particular plant. It's really about the idea that the plant kingdom is a source of amino acids, right? And so if you think about it that way, there's an enormous number of plants that we could use to, to, to take protein from. And it's it really interesting ones like cottonseed has great protein. We would never do this, but tobacco leaves has a pretty good source of protein, right? Um, lupin, camelina, mustard seed is one of my favorites. So there's all these different places you can pull protein from. So anyway, so so we mill it. We then, it, it it's, 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 it's crushed, basically. It, it's separated. Right, and and this is done by a supplier of ours, and then we we take that that protein, right, and we run it through a really simple process of heating, cooling, and pressure. And the machine is an extruder is, that exactly. does the heating and the cooling and the pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Is anything lost by changing the uh, the shape of the protein? You know, I think of like boiling broccoli; you lose so much of the nutrients rather than steaming it. Right. Right. What's cool is that it's basically been stripped down to its protein. Right, mm-hmm. and so you're just changing the form. You're stitching it together in a new way, but there's not some sort of fundamental conversion where it becomes a lesser protein. So you're trying to mimic meat. Have Have you thought of calling it something else? Because in a way, maybe when you started out, you thought, well, how can I re- make a replacement for meat? But aside from those people who have been eating meat uh, who are alive, I mean, there, you have new generations of people being born. Yeah. You could call it plant yeah. or whatever word you want to put to it. <laughs> My mother is after me for the exact same thing. Every time we talk about it, she said, why are you trying to... I'm like, well, uh, um, because uh, what we talked about uh, with respect to the role that meat has played in our culture, uh, I'm really focused on providing a absolutely convincing piece of meat just yeah. made from plants. Yeah. So I want to go back to the early days. Uh, you graduated uh, from Columbia Business School and went to work at Ballard pa- Power Systems, which is a fuel cell company uh, making clean batteries, basically. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah clean fuel cells, yeah. So you've, you've always had kind of this con- conservation ethos. Um, how, where did that arise? It certainly comes from my dad. When I was growing up, uh, you know, I always think about my dad in this way: that, that have you ever seen a deer like in Central Park? Like they just don't belong. They're like scared. They're like, I gotta get out of here. That's like that's my dad. <laughs> he hates the city, and so every chance he got, he would pack our car up and he would drive us out to our farm. But he taught me there uh, about the natural world, and I fell in love with it. My dad is a professor. He's at McGill now, but when I was a kid, uh, he was at the University of Maryland. We have a farm in the western part of the state that was supposed to be a hobby farm. We turned it into a real business where we had uh, Holstein dairy cattle, about 100 head of Holstein dairy cattle. At what point did you start thinking about this idea of meat replacement? What was the catalyst for getting to this topic? Uh, it took me a really long time. Um, and really about courage, I think, uh, first and foremost, and, and a willingness to, to let my own heart speak to, to who I am versus what I thought people thought I should be. Um, what did you think they thought you should be? Um, so I, uh, you know, had like formal training and, and was like very focused on climate through energy. I just felt that it wasn't serious enough to like go start like some kind of tofu factory, you know, like, but I had this sense that, you know, there was something amiss. 
you started reading about livestock and the meat industry, and you came across a paper written by two professors at the University of Missouri, Fu Hung She and Harold Huff.、Yeah. What was their paper about, and how did you find them? I was thinking about how do I get into this field, so I started to、uh, make some small investments in, in restaurants that were doing well,、uh, serving plant-based food. Everything that we were doing, we had to basically disguise the product in something. I, I, I just began to think about the science behind it. So there's no reason that you need to run all this through an animal.、And、so I started reading, and it's really a story about the internet. I mean, I like literally would just stay up at night and read whatever I could find. Right, and、um, over time, I came over across、uh, what Fu Hung was doing and what what Harold was doing, and I called them up and and said, "Hey, I'd like to come out and talk to you." At what point did you decide, okay, we're going to partner, and I'm going to license the technology from、right. you? So they they had actually, you know, this extrusion has been around for a long time. What they did was develop a basically a set of variables、uh, that the, it was. Let's think about it like a lock on a safe, like. You, know, you can know that you have to have three numbers there, but if you don't know the sequence and everything else or the numbers, you're kind of stuck. And so they found the exact right combination of heating, cooling, pressure that I felt created this really realistic muscle form. It's、mm-hmm. restitching a protein into muscle form. I would basically produce as much as I possibly could in a day at the University of Missouri in their lab, right? And then、uh, we would take it back. I would take it back to Maryland. I would fly back, you know, hundreds of pounds of chicken. And we didn't have a place to store it, so I would put ice in my bathtub. So you would just、uh, jump on a commercial airplane with yeah, yeah. with a, a sack of、uh, yeah. chicken. And there's funny episodes like where some, one, once it opened in the overhead and started falling out chicken, and Southwest was like, "What's wrong with you? You can buy those big bags from Southwest for like thirty five bucks." So、uh-huh. I would show up at the airport with as cold as I could keep it stored so, in the overhead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, sometimes the the, the、um, boxes would open, and people like, "What are you carrying? Why do you have all this chicken?"、And、I'd be like, "Very flattered." I'd be like, "Thank you for asking that way." But、um, glad you think it's chicken. Yeah, exactly. But to answer, but how did I license it was really interesting. And we were working on this for a long time. I was up at our our, our farm, and、um, our neighbor, my neighbor, came over to me and said.、Uh, I just read about this chicken that's being developed in the University of Missouri. I was like, "Wait, that's the project I'm working on." But Time Magazine had run an article, and the sort of press office at the University of Missouri had orchestrated it. And so, you know, I was like, I called up Harold and I said, "Harold, what are you doing? Like, this is we, we were partners." He said, "You know what? They were under very sharp orders to, to basically just do this, to not communicate it, etc." But you know what? They were like, they got inundated with calls. Like all these big corporations wanted to license it. Absolutely incredible to me. Harold Fuhang and the tech transfer office at Missouri was like, "We already got a guy,"、mm. and they gave me a license. I mean, that's amazing. So, at the time that you got the license through this kind of backdoor way, thanks to Time Magazine,、yeah. <laughs> was it basically you and how many others were you working with in Maryland? Right. So we had a very small team. So I started the business、um, and almost immediately started importing what I felt was the very best protein that I could find. Uh, and that came out of Asia because Asia, the, the Buddhist temples, they've done a lot of work on this for hundreds of years, right? And so I started to import、uh, from a Taiwanese company a basic protein、uh, that was like beef, right? And it was you know, soy and wheat. It wasn't very sophisticated, but、um, I began to sell it to Whole Foods. We we would run it through.、Um, Very large kettles in a in a kitchen that we、uh, rented out、um, in the evenings from a restaurant,、um, and would sell it into to Whole Foods prepared foods、uh, section. Now, how did you get into Whole Foods? I mean, you don't have a background in,、uh, in right. you don't have these relationships. Persistence, absolutely.、Uh, you just call and call and call. When did you get your first investors, and who were they? 
I uh, funded the early part of the company. So How I, much? Like, yeah, I don't have the figure with me, but yeah, but, yeah far more than like over $100,000 for sure. And then uh, raised money from friends and, and family. And then I got the license, and then I sent a note out to basically every venture firm that I could find. Right. And you didn't have any relationships pre-existing. No, no, mm-hmm. no. And this is from Western Maryland that you yeah. were writing to Kleiner Perkins. I did write and... to Kleiner, yeah. I, I emailed, and I remember the title of my email was a Prius for the plate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was not, not super effective, though. Um, <laughs> but, but Kleiner uh, reached out to Missouri independently, um, and Missouri connected with me. And I've been through some tough, tough times with them. And I, I just I can't say enough good things about them. You were their first food-based investment. Yeah. Can you give me some more color on that first encounter? Sure. Two partners there, um, Ray Lane and then a junior partner named uh, Moldis Bonde, were the ones that looked at the company. And even they had to convince their own partners, like, this made sense, right? And, you know, it was sort of there were some kind of derisive perspectives on the company that, you know, this is sort of fake meat. What are you doing? But Ray was, and, and others on the board have always been there and said, no, let's, let's, get, let's get this done. Bill Gates is an investor. The Twitter founders, Ev Williams and Biz Stone mm-hmm. are, are investors. Correct, yep. How did they come to be a part of this? I met Biz through Kleiner. And Bill Gates? Yeah, same thing. I mean, uh, through Kleiner. Know, yes. When we first had the meeting with him, I can remember being briefed that, you know, he's going he's gonna to zero in on some sort of mathematical part of your presentation and ask you to do it, you know. And so I, I like, studied, relentlessly studied my presentation to make sure that I wasn't caught off guard by some statistic or something. All the guy I wanted to talk about was his family, <laughs> how good the food was. He was, like, the nicest guy. Uh, so it was a wonderful meeting, and um, and we've gotten to know him you know, fairly well throughout this. So. so I want to talk about the actual meat. What did it taste like when you first started off, and now what does it taste like? Sure. I think what we got right in the beginning was the underlying texture of meat, so that that kind of striation and that resistance that you get when you bite into a piece of meat. But the um, taste wasn't there, but the taste, texture was there. No, the taste wasn't there. The you know, dis- distribution of fat was not there. Oh, yeah, the aroma was not there. The overall appearance was not there. It's still not there, actually. And so, yeah, I, again, it was like the whole balance of parts was missing. And so it's interesting. We kept working with food scientists to try to overcome that. But I feel that the real breakthrough that happened for us uh, was when we started to bring in a scientist from other disciplines, a fellow from, from Stanford, Jody Puglisi, um, who's the chair of the molecular biology department at Stanford Medical. That started to make real breakthroughs. Was there a breakthrough moment technologically on a chemical level? Yeah, for sure. The distribution of, um, of fat and water, for example. So we can take a, um, a, a piece of chicken, a chicken breast, or, or, or a piece of beef and put it under an MRI like you would your knee. And you can begin to study and understand exactly how water, fat, and, and protein are distributed. As you gain that more fundamental understanding, you can improve your products. Mm. And so we didn't have that in the beginning. Any yeah. other example like that? So there's 600 molecules. There's 600 molecules that give the flavor uh, and aroma of meat, right? We have a, a system that allows us to try to identify what are the key drivers of those 600. But it's not only, it's not only the, the presence of the molecules, how they combining and reacting under heat. What has been harder for you than you thought? What in terms of building the business was harder for you than you thought? Getting out of the meat alternative section. The alternative section is not where you want to be. It's just a penalty box. It's a it's a forgotten. Where would you like to be? In the meat case, which is where we are now. So we, we got into the meat case at Whole Foods, which has been transformational for our business. I mean, absolutely transformational. If you're looking at that in the um, frozen section versus what we sell in the fresh meat case, we sell about 13 times more 
in the fresh meat case because that's where consumers buy meat. Speaking of Whole Foods, uh, there was a recall, I think, in 2014. They were selling curry chicken, and accidentally they used uh, your chicken Chicken. (laughs) instead of uh, animal-based protein chicken. What happened? It was, yeah, for, for, for I think three days or so, um, they sold a, a basically prepared curry chicken dish. And, and so consumers were, were eating our product thinking it was animal protein and eating animal protein thinking it was our product. And they just got the labels wrong. Someone in the kitchen just got two bags and got the labels wrong. Um, and I think what that speaks to is when you put those early products of ours into something, they are pretty indistinguishable from, from animal protein. But so na- naked, they're not. Did any of the consumers realize that it wasn't? Uh, I don't know how it became discovered. I think someone finally realized the tags were wrong or something. That's uh, ironically good press it for you. It was a very good compliment, yeah. And yeah. Any, anything happened from that in terms of sales? or? Uh, no, one of, the, one of the big things that happened at that point in the company was I think a couple, like six months prior to that, a guy named Mark Bittman wrote a, a really flattering piece about the company and was on the front page of the Sunday Review in the New York Times. That changed everything for us. So Mark Bittman being the food critic yes. for the Times. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so he came out to, we were, at that time we were at a, a, we, had a, we, took over a uh, we took over a kitchen in an abandoned hospital in, in, in Western Maryland. And Bittman, through a friend of mine, Kathy Freston, had um, connected with me and said, I want to come see what you're doing. I actually went to his apartment and we, we served, we made him dishes of... Um, our product and an animal protein equivalent. Where's it in, in Manhattan? Manhattan, yeah. And and we asked him to differentiate between them, which ones. And he, he had trouble telling us. Like, it was seven dishes. He couldn't figure out which is which. He said, I want to come out and see how you do this. So he came out to the facility, drove him out there, and uh, he did this great piece, video, everything. And uh, and that, for me, I think, put the company on the map. How would your parents describe you? Um, my mom once said that uh, I'm big and can lift a lot. <laughs> uh Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Um, Is that what she meant? No, I think she actually physically meant it. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think they, I'm not sure. You know, I was a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of kind of um, Huck Finn. Like I, I, the classes I didn't want to pay attention to, I didn't, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't become a really good student until I was in college. But uh, curious and and Mm -hmm. kind of full of life, I think, would be how I'd be described as a kid. Mm Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, sure. My guest has been Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.